podcast about things that interest programmers called code monkey talks we're your co-hosts i'm brian jackson and joining me is brian demers hey thanks and uh also joining us this week is our guest brenton bartell good evening how are you doing i am doing terrific how about yourselves good thanks for joining us yeah so uh for our listeners uh what we do here is our show is broken up into three segments uh we have a section where we first talk about uh current events things that are in the news that um uh are relevant to programmers then what we'll do is we'll go into an interview with brenton uh, about what he's doing at roblox and then finally uh we'll do a we'll leave you with something to do uh, while uh, you know you're waiting for our next episode to come out next week, so um, yeah, so that uh, that brings us to our first segment. Um, our first segment it's about current events, and we call it in the news. We each pick one news story we read about recently that we'd like to discuss. Brian, why don't you go first? What's your programming news? All right, so I found this today. It happened. I guess it started uh, the last day of January, but. Um, GitLab was down. They uh, they totally barked their their database and uh, their backup strategies more or less basically completely failed. Um, so yeah, so that's huge. Uh, they handled it really well. Very transparent. They yeah. um, so I mean they they must be commended for that. I really like when companies take ownership of that type of thing as opposed to trying to you know spin or or whatnot. You know, um, so two thumbs way up for that. But Obviously, this this uh, brings to light the importance of testing your backup strategy. Yes, <laughs> exactly. A real wake up reminder to everyone who um, is testing or is not testing their backups that that should be a part of your your backup strategy. Uh, do we know how long it was down for in total? Um, I don't I know. I think know it was it... about six hours that they lost. That's that's what I was reading. Is that there was six hours of production data that had been lost. Uh, I read earlier today that that they did find that on a staging server. So it sounds like they may have recovered all of the data at this point, or they expect to recover all the data. But. Yeah, they lost um, uh, some webhooks, I guess. So they drop. I, th- I think this is what I read. So so someone will have to correct me if I'm wrong here. But um, so their backup staging testing server had um, a six-hour-old backup. But they drop the with the webhooks so things don't fire when they're testing, you know, upgrades or whatever they're doing. Um, so I guess they did lose um, a larger window of of webhooks configuration, new users, and and whatnot. Um, the, I guess they didn't lose any Git data that was. Um, There's no Git repository data, so no commit history or anything with it. Like that was um, at risk. It was what they store in their database, uh, and I believe as a Postgres database that they had backing it. So it's all like pull request issues, uh, or I'm sorry, they call it merge requests, merge requests uh, and issues, things like that, uh, that were uh, at risk for data loss. Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, I mean, it's super great that they're transparent about it, but it's yeah, they definitely get A plus for uh, you know their effort with being transparent. I mean, I saw at one point they were live uh, casting the uh, restore process that they were going through. So, oh, wow. um, yeah, so you could actually like 
jump onto a screencast and see like where things were at uh, at that point yeah i um, can't i can't imagine that uh i mean it was, so was it was it actual video of people or was it was it uh, like progress bars did do you know no it was it was a literally like a screencast of like somebody's terminal at at gitlab Wow, well, that's yeah. great. Uh, I would be super paranoid if that was my terminal, but uh, I mean, you know, again, I commend them for for the effort. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so at one point, their rundown of all the lists was extremely comp- comprehensive. Um, just all the commands that was going on, and it's um, the their honesty. I think definitely bought them a lot of time, and it was interesting to see if they they can get it. Uh, put back together before people started to get restless because you eventually reach that one point where it's like okay guys thanks for the honesty but mm-hmm. you know how much longer sort of thing and then the, the eta start questions start coming up yeah yeah and it brings into light too um i know a couple places i've worked uh everybody was backing up uh obviously git repos are pretty easy to back up um from server to server but you know like github issues and and those types of things become a little more gray area right because you're depending on that service to provide these things to you but at the same time if one of these big services you know closes down tomorrow you know where does that data go how do i get it out um you know in the case of a complete failure or what happens um so do you guys have any thoughts on that yeah I do. I have lots of thoughts. <laughs> and I completely agree. Um, and I think one of the things that I've always struggled with is, um, you know, when I compare and contrast GitHub versus GitLab, which is, I think, one of those potential flame war slash religions in our industry. Yes. Um, uh, the thing that GitHub does really well is their API and exporting, being able to export data, uh, all the pull request information and whatnot out of their API, I think is critical for this type of thing. Um, I know that at several jobs uh, that I've had so far where we've depended on GitHub, we've been doing that and we've been trying to back up that information as well as um, obviously the Git uh, info, right? And Git stuff's easy because mirroring a Git repository is is very straightforward. Uh, It's mirroring all that other information that things get wonky. Um, And it's not portable. Like, so when I say backing it up, I'm really just backing it up so that I can restore it to another GitHub instance, uh, whether it's an enterprise or github.com. So trying to port that over to GitLab is very hairy. Um, GitLab has a lot of import features um, for like a one-time import, but like syncing across really uh, is definitely not something that you'd want to attempt to do. Um, Do we want to move on to uh, the next topic? You yeah, think we have more to talk about here. I think we could talk about this all day. I just, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying yeah. not to. <laughs> okay, no, we're we're good. Um, okay, so the next story, uh, Brenton, what did you want to talk about? Uh, well, big thing that came out uh, yesterday was uh, the the AI that uh, beat humans at poker. Yeah, so I, I haven't actually read this story. I'll, I'll be honest. So tell me a little bit about it. it, it who um, created this AI? Uh, from my understanding, it was at uh, Carnegie Mellon, as as most AI thing uh, where they come out of is, is Carnegie. Mm. And uh, my understanding is they had it running for twenty days against some of the top pro poker players. So it's you know people who play poker for a living. Yeah. Um. And uh, after about the twenty three week twenty day mark, um, they they pretty much stopped it because at that point, uh, the AI had racked up uh one point seven million dollars in chips wow. for how they're playing. Um, uh, 
I haven't read too much yet of the actual details of of what the AI looked like in the, in pretty much from a coding standpoint. Yeah. Um, because with poker, there is a lot of it's not just running the numbers, running the stats. There's also you know the the pretty much the lying essentially. Um, yes. How do you how do you get everyone to bluff and that sort of thing? And so how they actually set that up to be able work around that. Um, it'd be interesting to see as as the reports come out how yeah, that was all done. So was this with real money? Like No, I'm pretty sure it was it simulated essentially. Oh, okay. Yeah, I th- I think it couldn't be real money because of the, you know, online gambling aspect. Um, right. So, Cuz I was but, like are they doing this overseas or okay, yeah. that makes more sense. Okay. Um yeah, that, that's really interesting. I I I'm with you Brenton, like I'm very interested to know how they do a lot of that kind of intuition fuzzy logic you know poker face type um you know yeah sentiment stuff it'll be interesting to follow up too about if the human players could tell which players were uh you know the bots essentially oh yeah Um, right like the turing test yeah uh, for poker for for poker poker players (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. i I had seen this article early on when when they were when the computer was up um about 10 bucks a hand i think um, but then I, I forgot to follow up on it. So it's really cool that you brought this up. It's, it's, it's almost a double-edged sword from the AI's part because they, the AI might not be able to tell if, you know, another human is bluffing. Um, but at the same time, none of the humans will be able to have any chance of knowing if the, the, the AI is bluffing either, because it's, you know, at that point, I'm assuming running purely mathematical, um, so any any sort of ticks or any sort of uh, tells, um, there's no way that a human would be able to pick up on that from an AI, pretty much. Oh, that's true. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, and so I wonder how um, how this applies to like other things. You know, is the expectation that you know they take this research and apply it to you know trading risky stocks and uh, you know, playing other games or politics or, you know, it feels like there's a very interesting set of domains that they could try to apply some of the the intuitive stuff um, that comes out of playing poker. Yeah, that's that's very true. There, There's lots of different avenues they can go down with that. And then what will that open up? You know, for example, if they do go into stocks, will we see regulations on, on that? I mean, stocks right now are heavily algorithmized, if that's a word. Um <laughs> But it's a word. Uh, yeah, I'll we'll, accept it. We'll, we'll make it a word. Boom. As of yeah. right now, done. Um, you know how, what we might see in terms of that if, if you know, at that point humans are completely hands off of anything to deal with that, and it's just you know letting the robots take over essentially. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's very interesting. So um, uh, I have a, a story that I want to talk about. It's. Uh, Yahoo Screwdriver, uh, which is another CI/CD, it came out uh, earlier this month. It was open sourced um, by Yahoo, which is kind of a. It, it, there's two stories I want to talk about here: is the idea of uh, a dying company open sourcing, you know, code. Is this sh- just shovelware? Um, as well as I looked at the project, and it seems really interesting, and it seems like they've got a lot of adoption internally at Yahoo um, for it. it. It seems to be sitting in the space of, uh, you know, Travis or, um, you know, uh, uh, CircleCI, uh, a very kind of YAML-based uh, dockerized containers for agents um, system. So have you either of you guys heard of this before today? 
I, I missed this. I, I, I had yeah. not seen it. Um, probably because of the first comment you made. <laughs> I'm, yeah, glad, exactly. I'm glad you made that before I did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, it, that's that all by itself is is a topic we're talking about. I mean, we, we don't need to spend much time on it, but um, is it shovelware? Is it is it right. actually, you know, people that um, you don't want to open source it before you know the death of the dying star type of thing <laughs> right yeah and no, no, it, it it doesn't feel like it it's funny none of that was even mentioned in anything that i've read um and it feels like when yahoo gets consumed by i don't even remember who bought them at this point is it uh, uh, verizon verizon yeah right is that okay um is it going to be something that continues to get you know traction internally there and and stays with the remnants that that is yahoo at verizon um or is it going to be something where verizon you know has a system and they're just like nope thank you very much like come you know use our choice of cicd if it's you know jenkins or something like that yeah i hadn't heard of it until you mentioned it and uh i've got it up on my screen now i'm here at screwdriver.cd yes um and it's it's looking very polished, very nicely put together. Right. Uh, it's, it's interesting their use of Python for it all, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, exactly. That's same same kind of reaction. You know, I was very surprised at how polished this was, uh, given the the public state of Yahoo. So it's it's a huge company, and I don't mean to discount like all the probably really smart people that are working there um, and working on this stuff. Uh, so it's pretty cool that, that they were able to open source this. I think it's definitely uh, a, a boost for the open source community. You know, as we've seen Microsoft um, open sourcing some of their stuff recently, and, you know, a lot of these big uh, entrenched companies finally maybe borderline reluctantly, but finally moving to that open source, um, yeah. spreading the word. I mean, the benefit is, you know, if they do get people on board to start using this is to grow the product or, you know, if people use it and then apply, you know, anyone coming into um, Yahoo or what might end up being Verizon will have that experience walking in the door on their first day of the job sort of thing. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the thing that I'm struggling with uh, in my current day-to-day -day is um, Windows support on CICD. You know, it's really, uh, it still surprises me that really Jenkins and TeamCity are the only um, servers out there that, that do a really good job of abstracting away the agents so that you can use a Windows agent and do builds on Windows. Um, unfortunately, things like Travis and CircleCI and now it looks like screwdriver are very linux heavy and linux based i can't blame them i'm sure that's because their infrastructure is all linux based um but it's interesting i feel like there's a real opportunity for one of these to um deliver strong windows support and take off in that market um you know i think that really also drives a lot of enterprises that are using windows i think they would like to move away from the jenkins jenkins file um, uh, side of things into something that's more YAML based and container based for for this. So what do you guys? What think? is this whole Windows thing you're talking yeah. about? Oh, I'm sorry. Excuse me. There's this. There's this operating system. It's kind yeah. of an alt uh, operating system that um, you know some people use. Yeah, uh, sorry, yeah. sorry, I kid, I kid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I totally agree. Uh, as far as you know, uh, the further away you can be from defining all of your builds inside of a Jenkins job, the yeah. better. You know. Yeah, 
yeah, I've had the past few weeks of really trying to embed myself in Jenkins' file. And Brenton, you might be able to talk a little bit about this too, because I think you have more experience than I. And I kind of hate the Jenkins file. <laughs> um, to you know, they I love I love Groovy, which this is the real odd thing is I love Groovy. Um, I think it's a great language, and surprisingly, the Jenkins file is really gnarly because all of the steps that that um, are there uh, that are available are you know they're based on jenkins plugins and they're really undocumented and or poorly documented and like anytime i want to like so perfect example and i tweeted about this was unzipping a file in a jenkins file having a jenkins file like basically download a file and unzip it i had to dig into unit tests to figure out how you even do that yeah i know when uh we could probably talk about this more during the uh, the next segment, but I know when the okay. Jenkins file stuff came out, it was, it, you could see what they're trying to go for. It, it was one of those things of uh, good in theory, questionable in implementation. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly so. the experience I've had. I was hoping that I'd waited long enough that it's matured yet, but I think I'm going to be waiting for like a Jenkins 2.5 or something like that before yeah. it really matures to the level of documentation and support and flexibility that uh, somebody like me, um, you know, is going to want. So, yep. well, I think that's a perfect segue then. Um, but before we dive into our interview segment, um, this is something that I like to ask all of our guests, uh, since it's, it's a broad topic and there's different people that have different definitions. But Brenton, how do you define DevOps? Oh, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? It um, is. So that's why I ask. <laughs> yeah, I think I think by now at this point, um, everyone agrees, you know, even just the root of the word between DevOps, developer and operations. Um, maybe about a year or so ago, even that was a little bit in flux. But now it's pretty much accepted that DevOps is the, the marriage of developer and operations. The The question now is almost where is that line between mm. the two? Um I mean, going back historically, you definitely had a, a big wall between the two in terms of developers pretty much pitching stuff over at the wall in operations and kind of saying, good luck, let me know if it fails. Right, um, right. And then when it did fail, the operations people would throw it back and say, hey, it's failing, and then have to keep reminding the developers to fix the failures. Um, over time, that you know wall became a fence, uh, and now that fence has kind of become more a, a line in the sand. Um, and because that line can keep moving it, it does keep moving and it's it's it almost is well it pretty much is uh, company dependent depending on the size of the company um one of my first earlier gigs was in their classic web dev shop and web dot or devops was a single person because you were responsible for the code and you're responsible for getting it up there mm -hmm. um as the company scales and as you got a bit more of the, the silo effect um those walls have its tendency to come back up and it's it's kind of that constant discussion constant communication between the two um, larger companies you might have a dedicated devops department or the pm could be kind of the go between between the two of them um, yep. so i personally i like to see devops as you know our, our ultimate goal is to to make the customers happy um, and wherever that line in the sand between developers and operations is to find the sweet spot, essentially. Yeah. Which yeah, is exactly. a, a 
a fairly political answer without providing any actual information. <laughs> I no, I, I think it, it provides experience. That's, you know, that's, I think for, for folks who are in this space, I think even at a junior level, totally understand kind of where you're coming from. Um, you know, that, that it really is, it's as much of culture and, um, you know, being a change agent to uh, a more traditional uh, workflow as it is, tools and okay who's the guy who's responsible for you know checking that a release is done um you know which is more the nitty-gritty of stuff yep definitely cool so um i, I kind of skipped into it so why don't you uh, introduce yourself tell us you know you're at uh, currently at roblox and uh tell us what you're doing there so i am a uh pretty much a build engineer um senior build engineer. Uh, I've only been at Roblox now for just a little over a couple months. Uh, before that, I was at Disney for almost eight years. Uh, originally hired to work uh, as a PHP dev on Club Penguin. And then just as jobs and opportunities came up, um, was in charge of uh, the build department for a while. And that was taking the Flash-based game, compiling it, and getting it out uh, onto the web for, for kids to play with. Um, and then over time, we finally migrated to a mobile-based platform. Uh, and again, pretty much it was the build automation pipeline. Um, as, uh, as I told non-tech people, I, I built the code that automated building the code. <laughs> I, I've used that, uh, that phrase a few times, and people yeah. just scratch their head if they're, if they're not very technical, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a tricky thing to describe to even sometimes people within a company or even tech people themselves, yep. you know, it's kind of a, you know, why can't I just build it on my machine or on my, on my local machine and put it out, put it out to production. And that usually gets me wincing when people say local builds. Yep. Um, because there's, uh, there, there's so many pieces in there. And uh, a lot of that was, you know, either something as basic as, um, making sure the, the unit tests pass, or I should say making sure there are unit tests. Yeah. Um, to, you know, making sure passwords are secure, that security is is followed, um, uh, privacy information, all, all those sorts of things. And depending on the the platform that we're building, you know, if it's if it's something like a mobile game going to Apple, that's a little bit bit more rigid on what you can do because Apple is quite strict on that. Um, but something like a a pure web setup where it is, you know, either just PHP code and you can just throw it out there whenever you want. Uh, how do you put those checks and balances in place uh, and how you put those guards up? Um, and on the other side of that coin is how do you do that without preventing uh, agility, essentially? Um, agile being the, the big buzzword for a while, there is, you know, you, you can do things really fast and really quick, but that means you can break things really fast and really quick. Um, of course, if you break them really fast and really quick, you should be able to fix them really fast and really quick but that's that's essentially where 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 my niche was was playing the um as i like to call it the mortar between all the bricks to go from a developer's workstation to the app in on an ipad in the kids hands yeah yeah you know you're really getting to well you know you you mentioned here one of the things that um i really like to see in a great kind of devops pipeline which is having the ops folks be able to expose what the operations the operational needs are in a way that developers 
can understand it and are easily enabled and empowered to meet those standards, um, you know, be it through good documentation or good tooling or a platform as a service or a platform in some way that allows them to deliver it with all of that stuff already baked in, you know, whether it's alerting and monitoring or, um, you know, uh, storage quotas or things like that, that end up being um, a big part of kind of where on the server side of things, um, you know, become important. Or if it's, you're delivering something that's, uh, you know, an iOS app or um, an Android app, having it make sure you're meeting all the license if you're using and consuming open source, uh, having it so that that um, is enforced or checked and, and balanced in, in the right way. So, yeah, um, and then vice versa, having it so that the developers can also um, uh, expose what they need to operations folks of, you know, I need this to be quick and agile and something that I can iterate quickly on. And, and you mentioned something there, um, documentation. What, yeah. What's that? What's that again? Right. <laughs> I think that's the eternal struggle in our industry, right? Is we're moving too fast to document anything, right? Yeah. And oh, so, yeah. Especially when those deadlines start looming and. Uh, you know, if, if marketing or project manager is saying, you know, here's the deadline, documentation is often the first thing to go, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Documentation first, test second. Yep, yep. <laughs> and then uh, any, any quality shortly after that. <laughs> yep. And I think that was a large part of, of my roles in um, various places as well is, is almost being, being the bad guy in terms of making sure everything is done properly. Um and uh, pushing back on, on some of that. At the same time, a lot of it is communication as well because, um, I mean, back to defining DevOps, um, just because that uh, there's a fence between the two and you can talk through the fence doesn't mean that people are. And that was a, a large part of it is just communicating amongst people because it, it, at first it was surprising. Now now it's not the, just the, um, I don't want to say lack of communication, but lack of clear communication hmm on what is required on both sides because um, quite often you know a developer will go through and add 20 different plugins or 20 different extensions and forget to tell um, or libraries and dependencies forget to tell the ops people that that is all needed there and as soon as it hits production or hits hit somewhere else it all fails because whoops forgot to talk back and forth yeah yeah exactly um it- would you mind telling us a little bit about what Roblox is for our listeners who might not be familiar with it? Most definitely. So uh, Roblox is a a platform. Uh, they pretty much provide uh, a, what they call Roblox Studio, which you can go and actually build games. Um, so it's it meets that nice need of people that want to play games and people that want to build games. Hmm. Um, as they like to call it, it's an, an imagination platform, essentially. Um it uh, is on uh, tablets, um, smartphones, desktop, um, uh, Xbox One, I think, as well, um, Oculus. Um, you can sign up, go in, uh, you can play the games. There's tons and tons of games uh, of various levels, very simple ones to very complex ones. Um, people have built lots of games as well. And because it provides the the ecosystem and the platform there as well, um, there's a lot of... Uh, socialization interaction going on um and uh i mean it's it's really really exploded in growth in the last little bit um i mean they're talking about billions of hours played uh in the last uh, almost uh nine years now since 2008 um wow. over 40 million players um 
because of the ecosystem that it provide um, and people building a game versus people playing and then spending money to play the games and to mm. to buy things in game, um, they actually pay out a, a little bit as well to the developers. So they paid out uh, quite a few million to community developers. Um, and actually, just recently, uh, within the last few weeks, uh, we actually hit over uh, one million peak concurrent users. So that wow. was a really big milestone as well. Yeah, that's great. That's incredible. Um, I can tell you, too, my children are two of those users, um, and they are consumers. Terrific. They are not uh, content creators, uh, but they love it. And it's it's very, um, you know, I hope you don't mind this analogy. It's very similar, in a sense, to going on Minecraft servers, um, yes. you know, and allowing, you know, it feels to me it's a safe space, you know, for my kids, you know, of course, this day and age with internet security, you know, you really need to uh, make sure that something's safe. And I feel completely safe letting my kids uh, onto Roblox, um, you know, and so it's, it's really cool for that uh, as well. Um, and so it's really interesting that you have kind of, you have your content creators, and you have to like support them as an audience. And then you have your consumers uh, as another um, uh, part of this. Uh, do you treat do you have that idea that these are different audiences and you treat them differently or uh do you is it really just kind of like you have roblox users and the idea that you might be creating something or you might be consuming something is kind of uh indifferent uh to a certain extent you can't help but treat them slightly differently um there is the i mean for for playing on mac there is the the um, Roblox player to play the game, and then there's actually a completely separate suite called the Studio for building. Um, and you can, it is very comprehensive. It's very amazing with its, um, I mean, physics engine and everything in the in the background as well for building pretty much virtual worlds. Um, so they they all come together at some point, but they they still are different audience focuses. Um, kind of look at the same as um, another good analogy. It's good that you brought up um, Minecraft. Um, uh, another analogy is something like uh, Uber or um, or even Airbnb, hmm. where you know they they are the platform. They provide the ecosystem for people to get together. Um, obviously, they need to be able to handle both um, as well. Uh, different niches depending on needs within within the two, whether it's the you know the users or the providers in something like Airbnb. But um, providing that platform and that ecosystem for everything to happen within it. Oh, that's very cool. That's not a, an analogy I had connected before this, and but it's right on. So I totally, I totally get that. Um, so uh, taking a step back or digging deeper into it, um, how is the infrastructure, like the build infrastructure, uh, set up to kind of enable uh, your developers to meet kind of the requirements of uh, you know uh, these different audiences? Uh, you say developers like our internal developers or the, yes. the kids? Oh, okay. Yeah, the internal developers developing the platform. Yeah. Um, my main focus within the company is uh, on the, the mobile side. So mm. building the Android app, building the iOS app. Um, one of the good things that they have is that there is a common engine amongst all the different platforms. Um, and so it is, in that sense, uh, borderline platform agnostic um, to make sure that a lot of the shared libraries between iOS, um, Android, and the other ones are the same so you don't get too many deltas between the two because the last thing you'd want is you know something to completely break on the android but be fine on on ios you don't want to hurt the community that way um so our our back-end infrastructure setup is um 
definitely going for the the CI CD model. Um, uh, trying to build fast, fail fast, fix fast, mm. essentially. So having a lot of the unit tests, um, integration tests. One thing we um, like to do as well is actually having on-device testing as well. I think that's that's one thing that a lot of places want to get to is the on-device testing. Um, but you know, as we mentioned before, the you know when you got a, a deadline coming up and tests might. Uh, be the first things to get axed. It's, it's even trickier to do on-device testing because you are dealing with with hardware. Yeah. Um, now, do you do you use any services like Sauce Labs or um, using anything like Appium to to do that type of testing, or is this all like homegrown stuff uh, and in a homegrown lab for devices that you have? Uh, we have done a little bit of Appium in the past, um, just because that was kind of the the easiest at the time. We're looking at other options and other avenues right now, just to kind of see what is out there. Mm. Um, not using anything external like Sauce Labs or anything like that, though. No. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, any like virtual virtualized testing, or is it just on device like physical device testing that you're doing? A bit of simulators as well. Um, yeah. The unfortunate thing with Android is, even though they do have simulators, they're not fast. Um, and so yes. just trying to do some of that is, is you know, you're, you're bottlenecked a bit in that sense. Um, and then we kind of hope, you know, kind of the, the staged uh, test approach where, um, you know, starting off with something like the, the unit tests, since those are a lot faster to catch all the big things there and then move to integration tests, um, move to even full stack tests where you might have a, a web service backend to test to make sure that things going from, from the, the client to the back end and back is all good. So you kind of have that as each stage approach, you get more complex and longer tests as well. Um, but then to keep that feedback loop as, as fast as possible. Yeah, that's great. Uh, there's a lot of people out there or a lot of shops that, you know, focus on integration tests, you know, which are generally slower. Uh, and it really bogs down, you know, what people can do because these tests, your initial set of tests takes so long to run. As opposed to like like you're mentioning, this is that's a great example. You know, unit test fast right off the bat, then maybe something a little longer, then you know more comprehensive, and then as you scale out, that's great. Yeah, when, when I was at um, when I was at Disney previously, we had this analogy of a multi-stage rocket essentially. That uh, you know, if the the first stage should be completed in under ten minutes, um, and then you can have you can have a number of tests or sorry, a number of builds going in parallel at that point. Um, and then after that 10 minute or so, you get the second stage where it could bring together five or six different uh, commits and different changes. And then that's the comp- more comprehensive. And then you kind of got your, your third stage of the, the longer running tests that might take overnight or, or what have you. And then obviously towards the end, you got production and in, into orbit essentially. Yeah. I really like that analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that as well. Uh, you know, I think the thing that um, many folks struggle is is building out each one of those stages, you know. So I think when you're uh, a part of a smaller team, how how do you start to implement those stages? Um, you know, it, I, I guess it's more of a pointed question of is that type of a structure already set up where you're at now um, or is that something that you're bringing to the table? A uh, little bit of both. Um uh, some of the other departments in Roblox already have a good chunk of that set up, hmm. um, and that's that's great. That's, um, I mean, they're they're off and running. Um, mobile is always that that tricky area, and I think that's why we've seen a lot of things like uh, 
Perfecto Sauce Labs, uh, some of these others uh, outside vendors come to help with testing is because there is a huge need there and because um, mobile apps aren't going anywhere. Um, right. They're definitely not going anywhere. And as, as the audience uh, comes to expect faster output of the apps or faster updates, um, uh, you need to keep, like testing needs to keep up with that. And I think that's one of the tricky things about build engineering is you always have to stay half a step ahead of the devs um, to be able to take into account a lot of that stuff. Um, so right now, right now we're building out a good chunk of that, bringing in some of the previous experience from Disney uh, where we had done a bit of that. And uh, it's, it, it is a, it is a long battle, but it is a fun battle. That's one of mm-hmm. the things that I really love. Um, I have to make the analogy that uh, I enjoy watching home renovation shows where you see something that's it, it functions, it's okay, uh, but they you know either tear it down, strip it down, or they do some sort of renovation. You can see the before and after and the progress, and that's kind of what I like to enjoy doing here as well. Is like the the, the process is is adequate because it it is seen. Um, fruits of the labor essentially but then to be able to to pare that down see where the low-hanging fruit is revamp that uh see where the biggest roi is you know if we can mm. make a, a significant change um and it might be something small like putting an ssd into a mac mini to make it faster um or it might be something bigger where it's revamping the overall flow because now you've got a, a shared library that needs to be needed by six downstream jobs so why bother uh rebuilding it six times essentially um so just taking that that big picture look at everything, and then drilling down into the each different pieces and see what will, what will provide good returns. Nice, nice. And and as far as like the stack that you're using, is it? Uh, I'm assuming Jenkins, or is it something else? Uh, we're currently using Team City right now. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's based on what was pre-existing before you joined. Yeah, pretty much. Nice. Um, I, I definitely had a lot more experience with Jenkins having come from Disney and. Uh, um, was around during that transition to, to Jenkins file about a year and a bit ago. Um, both, again, it's that the age-old war between the two, between Team City and Jenkins, Mac versus PC. I mean, I don't Coke think... versus it, Pepsi. Yeah, exactly. We're, we're never going to get away from that. Uh, personally, I would prefer I prefer Jenkins a bit more because it is open source. And um, if there is something broken, you can go in and fix a plugin. Um, yep. That's that's my own preference. Uh, other people like Team City for the exact same reasons that it's closed and they don't have to worry about it and they don't have to wait on the open source community to develop a, a patch eventually sometime in the next decade. Yep, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, and I think I think the downside that I had with um, with Team City because I've used both uh, pretty extensively now is that I don't like their equivalent of the. Jenkins file, right? They they instead have a, a set of XML files that get checked into the repository. Um, you know, so they they have a solution for checking in your manifest and and your your set of jobs, but um, it is not as clean and elegant as a single configuration file that's checked into the the root of your project. Um, and uh, I've I've kind of poked those guys, um, you know, back a few years ago when they started down that path and said. Hey, I really like the Travis YAML, or you know, I really like you know where they're going with Jenkins file. Um, it'd be great if you guys go in that direction. And um, 
so far, it's been probably six months or so since I really last looked to see where they're at, but it seems like they're sticking with their direction as it is today. Um, have, have you been using that? Is it, uh, you know, or are you backing up and, and using a different strategy to have your, your jobs um, uh, or your build configurations, excuse me, in Team City um, set up? A good chunk of what we're doing right now is purely through the UI, so not too much in terms of that XML setup. Yeah. Um, that that's always um, that's always one of the things that I, I see the the benefits of, but I can also see the need for strict caution around it. It is yes. great that you can have the the build information checked in alongside all of the code and everything. Um, the the risk you always run there is uh, whether accidental or on purpose making changes that haven't been vetted um, and everything comes crashing down. Yep, um, exactly. I think in terms of a where I see a good middle ground, um, especially with something like the Jenkins file, is uh, is setting up the, setting up, uh, using that as an orchestration essentially, setting up the scaffold, setting up the framework. So subset of those files can be used. And I think that's one of the things where, where Jenkins file um almost falls a little bit is because you can do everything in the Jenkins file. Hmm. I don't necessarily agree that you should do everything in, in Jenkins file. Absolutely. Um, so, so yeah, <laughs> like ha- having the, you almost call the jobs from the Jenkins file, but then the jobs are defined elsewhere. Um, I know there's lots of people that will disagree with me on that. It's, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's got a bit of ways to go to make it a little bit more cleaner. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I've seen a lot of, a lot of Jenkins builds in general, like uh, you have, you know, they depend on n number of plugins. The plugin versions are, are, uh, you know, uh, there are differences between each version, so maybe they're not backwards compatible, or just the fact that it makes the builds fragile um, is is problem. Like if you're if you come from the purely Maven aspect of things, right, and everything's defined there, as opposed to uh, you know, installing plugins and then, you know, I don't, I don't know. I, I just, to make a long story short, I, I think it just it makes everything fragile. Yeah. I, I am a stickler for standards and conventions. Um, not necessarily because they have to be enforced. It's just for consistency, right? Um, rather to be consistent than, you know, going all over the place. Um, and I think that's one thing that, the benefit of the open source community is also its downfall is because there's no one enforcing it or I shouldn't say no one. It, it, enforcement is a little bit trickier. Um, that's something we've also seen with Chef as well because that was another thing in our backend infrastructure is managing the consistency of the, the build agents via something like Chef. Um, and even there because there's it, it's great because there's so many ways that you can do it. It's also it's, it's downfall because there's so many ways that you can do it. And if you're not consistent, you know what? might be one person's Jenkins file works great, blows up for someone else because of an undocumented dependency 10 layers deep. Yes. Uh, so I think that brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you, Brenton, for uh, joining us today. No worries. Uh, my pleasure. But, yeah, thank you. And so where can our listeners find out more about what you um, about you and what you're working on? Um, well, my Twitter is uh, underscore Brantone, B-R-A-N-T-O-N-E, uh, with a leading underscore. Um, it is a random assortment of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, tends to be a bit more tech-focused just because uh, Twitter is a bit better that for that than 
um, let's say political discussions or something like that. Yes. Um, and then, uh, LinkedIn, um, uh, Brenton Bartell. Um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Brian, thank, Brian. Th- thanks, Brenton. Um, so yes. I'm also on Twitter at Brian Demers, all one word. Um, and I'll be at the Boston Java meetup, um, on February 7th talking about Apache Shiro if anyone's in town. Nice. Awesome. Uh, I can be found on Twitter as well. I'm at Jackson, J-A-X-Z-I-N. Um, I am also actually going to be at um, GDC this year. So I just found this out. So I'm going to be at uh, GDC 2017. Uh, so if uh, any of our listeners are there as well, um, hit me up on Twitter and uh, I'd love to meet uh, meet up with you. Uh, and that's uh, end of the month. That's February 27th through March, I think, 2nd or 3rd uh, in San Francisco. Awesome. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's going to be my first time going to GDC. So, uh, before we go, uh, let's uh, leave our listeners with something to do. So, this is where each week we'll leave you, the listener, with something to watch, read, play, or try out some other way. Uh, Brian, what did you want to leave our listeners with? All right, so I mentioned a couple weeks ago uh, I played a a legacy-style board game called uh, a version of Pandemic. Uh, So, a friend of mine um, bought... uh, Another game called Seafall, which is uh, actually by the same um, author or board board game designer. Um, And it takes a different spin on things. So this guy was the guy behind Risk Legacy uh, and then Pandemic Legacy, which are basically, you know, existing games. Um, You know, I think everyone's probably played Risk. Um, So everyone kind of already knows the rules. And the legacy aspect just changes game to game a little bit as opposed to um, Seafall sort of starts with the legacy aspect. Um, Hmm. So it's more, if you think of, uh, I I just watched uh, an interview with a designer. Uh, If you think of like a a role-playing game where your characters, you know, level up or or advance over time and and you come back and you play, maybe you play some dungeon or whatever, and then you come back the next time you've leveled up, you know, the game more or less restarts, but, you know, there's some aspects of the game that's that's currently there so seafall does that uh the first time you play it it's actually a tutorial so it plays like a a video game which i thought was amazing because because this is a different game no you don't come into it with uh with the same expectations you do with some of these other legacy games um so so basically it's uh um Pirates, ocean exploration, raiding, uh, but it's all cutthroat. So you play with three to five players and it's cutthroat. Um, and I've only played it a couple times so far, but I really like how it's how it's going. It's got a, uh, a pick a path, you know, choose your own adventure aspect to it as well. Um, so when you explore new new island or whatever, uh, you can pick you know, if you're going to be nice to the locals or bad to the locals and, hmm. and you go, you, you read an entry out of a different page in the log. So, so that the whole story changes a little bit, um, but it's great. Uh, so I'm excited. And, and the way you win, so your scores cumulative um, over the course of the games. So, you know, a different person could win each game, but then your total score gets added up and, you know, at the end of 15 games or so, that's the the ultimate winner. So I, I think it's a really great spin. That's cool. And so in general, what's the size of people, you know, the number of people, the, the crowd that you would play with? We're playing with five, uh, which yeah. works out great because the group, the board game group that I play with, usually have four or five people. So Pandemic 
uh, plays plays four people. So when when four people show up, we play four. You know, we play Pandemic, and then when um, five people are available, we play uh, Seafall. And Seafall, you kind of need to have the same players each game. Whereas Pandemic's a little more flexible. You can you can swap them out. So it's they're a great set of games to have in rotation. Wow, that's cool. That that sounds really cool. Um, so, uh, Brenton, what did you want to leave with our listeners? I'm going to go with the plug for Roblox itself. Um, Excellent. Uh, R-O-B-L-O-X dot com. Um, even just signing up to play some of the games there or, uh, or downloading Studio and developing and playing with something. Um, I had downloaded it just to, to play around with it and get my familiarity with the company and probably lost about a good hour just designing a little virtual world, the, the ease of it, uh, walking through it, um, putting different different things in. Uh, it's quite addictive and, and quite fun. And then with that, you can obviously upload it up to the cloud. Um, uh, another thing that we actually just came out with as well as toys. So if anyone's on the lookout for, for toys, they're making that transition from, from virtual to real-life toys. Oh, cool. Um, that'll be that'll be great to see how how that rolls out in the next little bit and uh, the the community just loving that and gobbling it up. Um, that's for those with kids or those that are like playing with toys. Uh, for for the olders as well, um, we are doing a crazy hiring right now. So if anyone really wants to get involved in that, um, they're based out of uh, San Mateo, but myself, I'm remote as well. Getting Very involved, cool. taking a look at some of the opening positions, uh, hit me up. Would love to t- talk more about that. Cool, and we'll have links uh, in the show notes to all of that. Uh, Terrific. Yeah, that's great. Um, and uh, I have actually been to the Roblox uh, headquarters uh, about a year or year and a half ago. For uh, they had a Silicon Valley VR meetup there, and it was a great space there. So, oh, really nice. I was not aware of that. Yeah, no, I hadn't told you that. And so, yeah, um, so it was really cool. Uh, and it was great to see. That was actually the, my first experience with Roblox. And then I want to say maybe six months later, uh, my kids just randomly found it. I don't know. I think YouTubers, I think they watch a lot of YouTubers um, who do Let's Play uh, type of videos. And, and they got hooked on it that way. And um, and so they were they were very excited that when I told them that I'd been there and then when I told them that you were working there, um, they were, they were even more in awe. So, um, they it's, are big fans. It, it definitely has a, a good, uh, good following. Uh, myself, I hadn't heard of it too much uh, until I jumped on board. And it was one of those things, as soon as I told people where I was working, it was one of those, Oh my goodness, my kid loves that game. And so it's, it's great to hear that everyone's getting such enjoyment out of it. Very cool. Uh, so my thing for this week, uh, so I have long commutes. Um, I'm depending on traffic, I'm commuting anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half to even two hours sometimes each way. So I've been looking for podcasts as well as I started looking for audiobooks. So I got a, a subscription, um, to audible and I got my first book off of there and it was, it's called the way of, uh, Kings and it is from a, incomplete series there's two books in the series right now it's called the stormlight archive and it is a really cool high fantasy um i mean so it's 45 hours uh the audiobook's 45 hours i'm not sure how many pages the the actual like paperback is but um so it took me a month of commuting to to make my way through it and i just finished it um earlier this week uh, the first book and uh it was awesome the first 10 hours or so that you know um i was listening i had 
no idea what was going on. There were names left and right, and I was like trying to follow along. And then something clicked, probably like, you know, 10, 15 hours in, and I started getting who was who. And, you know, it's a very cool, like, it's not, I wouldn't say it's Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones is so, um, you know, or Song of Fire and Ice uh, is so much more um, about kind of like espionage and backstabbing and killing and, you know, the the politics. Um, This is much more about kind of a... I think of like Gladiator, um, you know, the, the movie Gladiator, the Russell, the Russell um, Crowe movie, um, where it's like a guy falls, he becomes a slave and kind of his rise back to humanity. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of other like plot lines like mixed in. And there's a whole bunch of really cool like magic is used as as technology and like they've built like tools um, called fabrials around uh, this magic that they have called Stormlight. It's it sounds really high fantasy, but it's actually, it was really interesting. And by the end, uh, I'm hooked and I can't wait to like listen to the second book. So um, I encourage reader, readers to uh, to go take a look um, at this and give it a chance. Um, especially, I think if you like Game of Thrones, uh, uh, Song of Fire and Ice, this is something that you would enjoy. Um, if you like any kind of high fantasy lord of the rings you know things like that um this would definitely be something that would be interesting to you yes so i've uh, i've listened to a couple of books by the same author from the mistborn series uh oh, so yeah. so me personally i usually uh err on the side of the the space opera or the bolts aspects of, of the science fiction and fantasy category and that's yeah. actually one of my pet peeves that those two things emerge together mm-hmm. um but i'm a big fan of this author and how he writes and the fact that the stories are like 40 hours long 45 uh whatever uh because yeah. i know that the two misborn books that i listened to were that way and i used to crank through my audible credits and, and now i have a huge backlog because i mean 80 hours you know a yeah. normal book i think is anywhere between say eight and 13 hours yeah so, exactly so you know, it's almost a four for one type of conversion. So, and they're, and they're great, great stories. So it's huge thumbs up. Oh, that's good to hear that his other stories are good as well. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I think another podcast had turned me on to it. Um, I think I was listening to either DLC or, yeah, it's probably DLC um, with uh, Jeff Kanata um, and uh, uh, Christian Spicer. And that's where I think I'd first heard of it. And I was like, okay, my first month of Audible, oh, I only get one credit a month. Well, I better make I better make sure I choose something that's going to, you know, use up that full month. And it did. So I'm excited. Cool, cool. Yeah. So that wraps up another episode. So everybody can check us out on our website at codemonkey.fm or email us at feedback at codemonkey.fm. We have a Slack channel. You can talk to us uh, and Reddit. The links will both be on the website. So check us out. Yeah. And uh, hey, if if you like this episode, uh, do us a favor and review it on your favorite podcast finder of choice, uh, be it iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, or another one. Uh, That would really help us out and help us get heard by more people. So thanks for listening. Uh, Thanks again to Brenton for joining us. It really was a great interview. And uh, we'll see you next week.